Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you so much for the many blessings that you have given to us. You have taught us to pray that we would ask that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And Father, as we pray that, we have to begin by admitting that we, uh, we do not uh, always do your will. Instead, we find, even as Paul has described, that the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I hate, I find myself practicing. So God, as we pray that your kingdom would, would come, we pray that first individually in a way that confesses our sins to you. God, forgive us for the ways in which we have gone after our own selfish desires when which those old habits uh, still afflict us. And Lord, it's even, uh, even the way I talk about it is, is, uh, is not quite right. I, I try to make it seem benign by calling it an old habit. Instead, oh God, I, I recognize that those desires are indeed sinful and that I'm plagued by them because I still love them. So God, I pray that you would forgive me for entertaining those desires, for the way in which I have sinned against you in this last week. Father, we pray for forgiveness as well in a more, uh, a, a more corporate way too. This week, we as a, as a congregation have gathered together to humble ourselves through prayer and fasting, to cry out to you in repentance, for, Lord, we have sinned against you even as a people and as a church. We have not done as you have, have commanded us, and we have hidden the truth from others. We have practiced unrighteousness through, uh, uh, through the ways in which we have shown favoritism or we have hidden the truth. Oh God, we ask that you would indeed forgive us, that you would be rebuilding what has been torn down and uh, by the consequences of our sin, uh, that there has been damage done. Instead, O oh God, we pray that, uh, that you would forgive and reconcile and restore. We pray for our nation, too, for we as a nation have sinned against you. We pray, O oh, oh God, that as we more and more cast off your ways and your thoughts and uh, practice all manner of ungodliness. We pray that that you would uh, would stop us and uh, uh, convict us of this and turn us around and bring revival to our country. For Lord, we are sure that your kingdom will come. You yourself have prayed for this, and you yourself will accomplish it. For Lord, you have said that. That, uh, uh, that the, uh, the church is built upon the rock of Jesus Christ, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, O oh Lord, we pray for your kingdom to, to come. We pray that you might open doors for that message to go out in our community. We pray that we would be a light like a city set on a hill here in Stillwater, so that the hope of Jesus Christ would shine out in a way that others would ask, 
What is the reason for that hope? We pray, God, that you would give us boldness then to speak of why we do have hope. We would tell that there is a true message of salvation, that there is one and only one way for our guilt and shame to be done away with, and that is through faith and repentance. We pray, O oh God, that that message would go forth with a demonstration of power, the power that converts souls. Lord, we are not able to convince or to persuade or debate others into the kingdom. That is your spirit's work. So, O oh God, we pray earnestly, desiring for the conversion of those around us, that they too might come and enjoy the blessed peace that we have with you, that they might join us in bowing and worshiping our great God, creator and redeemer. Now, God, we pray that, uh, that, uh, that you would send laborers out into the fields for this purpose. We pray, O oh God, for the, uh, the corporate and the, uh, the official way that that happens through the raising up of ministers of the gospel. We pray for that as well in the individual ways too, as Lord, you are raising up men and women and children that, that do bear that light in the world around us. We pray that we would be among those laborers here in Stillwater. Thankful God for the way in which you have also enabled us to be senders. We pray, God, that from our midst there would go out missionaries into the world that would, uh, that would work in gospel ministry as Bridget is doing in the translation work. We pray that there would be uh, those from our congregation that would go into, uh, into uh, to serve you in the gospel ministry as pastors that you would raise up others to serve as elders and deacons, that you would raise up others to show compassion and so what are life services and other mercy ministries, that you would raise up others who would show compassion through the help that they give to their neighbors. For, O oh Lord, the, the fields are indeed white unto harvest. We pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers. So, God, as we pray for your kingdom to come, we pray that we would hear the message of that kingdom today as your word is read and preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Glad to invite you to hear the word of God as I read from 1 Samuel 27. read and preach from this entire chapter and, and also reach into chapter 28 as well and take the first two verses there. This is God's word. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should, uh, should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him 
to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt in Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeremielites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. I wonder if you've ever had a time in your life where you thought you had everything together that everything's going well, and then all of a sudden it falls apart. I'm going to guess that that has happened to each of us. This text describes such an instance in David's life, and it comes as something as a surprise. This is right on the heels of what we feel is a high point in David's faith. He has learned this very valuable lesson that his life and his times are in God's hands. And that lesson has gone so deep into his heart that he could say of Saul that I will not raise my hand against you. 
fact, David does this twice. Now, all of a sudden, David seems to go off the rail and he runs away to hide among the, the Philistines. And this isn't the first time he's done this. You might remember that this was something of a low point in David's life when David found himself hiding amongst the Philistines. And he acts like a crazy man because he's recognized there and he's afraid for his life. And so he drools and slobbers all over his beard and, and acts in a way that is just out of his mind. So the king Achish, who comes up again here, says, get this crazy man out of my court. I've got enough fools around me. David had learned these lessons, and it seems like he's risen in this faith. He's grown as the fruit of that faith displayed as he, as he spares Saul's life. Now, we don't know how long it was between David's encounter with Saul and to this, to this text, but the writer of this book places them right together. And it seems as if uh, not very much time at all has passed. In fact, the way that David describes it is that, that, uh, that David reasons in his own heart that surely Saul will come, so I should speedily go to the Philistines to hide. And that seems to be part of the purpose of God and purpose of the writer of this, so that we would be confronted with this wavering in David. Why would David seemingly forget to so quickly fall away from the stellar example of faith that, that he had? How could he doubt the promises of God that he had seen over and over again? How could he forget that lesson that he had learned through so much difficulty, that his life and his times were in God's hands. Well, Pastor Gordon Ketty uh, says it this way, that this transformation would shock us were it not so much of a recurrent feature of our own Christian experience. Isn't that true? We look at David and we're shocked. Here he is sowing uh, his faith in such amazing ways and then all of a sudden what's happened? He's down here seemingly denying his faith in God and running to hide amongst the Philistines and worse. But isn't that very much like the path that we are all on? Our Christian journey is full of ups and downs. Think about the, uh, the, the allegory that Bunyan wrote, Pilgrim's Progress. Just think about all that the main character goes through. You know, the story is of, of a man who's journeying to the celestial city. And as the story goes, there are ditches that he falls into and he gets caught in the mud. And he gets out of that. And then he is distracted by this, the vanities that lure him away. And then there is this mountain called the Hill of Difficulty that he has to go over. 
And then there's a giant called despair who throws him into a prison of doubt. And that's our Christian life, isn't it? It is not this upward rising uh, example of faith without any blemishes. We each one fall into those ditches and get caught in the prisons of doubt. So from David and from this text, we will learn that when you scramble to save yourself, you will end up in a position of compromise. This will drive to the exhortation, therefore fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We'll do that by looking at two things of David. For those of you taking notes, I'm going to give you both of them right here at the start. David's decision, and secondly, David's deception. David's decision and David's deception. First of all, his decision. In the best possible light, David was being prudent. There's more to it than that, but let's start here. David trusted God with his life, but he didn't trust Saul. And that was prudent. And for that matter, faith in God does not require David to entrust himself into Saul's hands. Think back last week when I talked about the consequences of sin and how David declined to go back with Saul to Jerusalem because of that repeated history. He could accept Saul's word. He could give room for repentance, but he didn't have to expose himself and all of his men to danger once again. And there's some prudence in that. And we see Jesus exercise a similar prudence. He did not go up to Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles because the text says that the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, we don't have any doubts that Jesus knew and believed and trusted the purpose of God. His faith never wavered. So his decision about exposing himself to danger in Jerusalem was wise. It was prudent. He was not moved by fear or swayed by doubt. I make this point because sometimes it is suggested that if you believe in God, then then you will... uh, (laughs) You will go down certain paths that are just downright foolish and expose yourself. Uh, Examples that come to mind uh, that some commentators have suggested is that a, a Christian mother may be required to take prudent steps to protect herself and her children from a violent husband. There is faith in God to deliver. There's wisdom to remove yourself when you're in harm's way. Missionaries go through this decision-making process as well. We're glad that that there are those that 
take the temperature of the surrounding culture in certain countries of the world and will advise their missionaries it's time to leave because your life is in danger. There's prudence that is exercised. And there's a certain amount of that that David exhibits. But there is something more about David's decision here that comes through. There is a certain amount of fear and doubt and worry that comes through, and it comes through in two ways. First, his decision is that he would leave Israel and go over to the Philistines. That comes through in verse 2 when he says that he went over, and it implies a, a crossing of a line, doesn't it? On a map, there would be literal lines. And you could think of, uh, in the, the, the movie, The Fellowship of the Rings, Sam gets to a point and he says, I've never left the Shire. And he, if I take one more step, I will go as far away as I have ever been. He and Frodo then take that step and go further. And there is some of that in this account of David, that he goes over to Philistia. It is a conscious decision. And it's significant because the Philistines were not the covenant people of God. They were God's enemies. And I've often called your attention to the way in which the Lord throughout scripture and throughout life gathers people in to attach themselves to the covenant of redemption. Most recently, I mentioned this with Abigail, that Abigail came to identify with David because he was the line of covenant blessing. Well, what David is doing is completely the opposite. Rather than attaching himself to the place of covenant promises, he went outside the country of Israel. He was driven away, as he said, uh, as he argued with Saul. He was driven away by the evil intentions of men. And that is true. But now he crosses over and he consciously makes this decision that separates himself from the tabernacle and the worship there, from the fellow people of God, from Christian uh, friends that would be around him. He looks outside the covenant community for help and safety. Now, again, we should be generous with David. You feel for him. He had earlier sought relief from God through Samuel, Jonathan, Ahithophel, the prophet, the king, the priest, the institutions of God's covenant blessings. And still Saul pursued him. So out of generosity, we, we acknowledge that this was a very difficult circumstance that David was in. And we acknowledge that David, after all, was a mere man. He was not perfect in his faith. But that is part of the point here, isn't it? That 
we as followers of Christ will never be perfect in our faith. We will indeed on that path fall into the ditches of temptation and despair and anxiety. We'll be caught in those temptations that so easily betray us and ensnare us. And maybe like David, the, the trial that you're going through just has you weary. The constant threat that David was under, uh, he says it here in this text that uh, surely Saul will, will finally catch up to me. Uh, and you, you can catch this since I'm just so tired. There has to be a place of rest somewhere. The first time he went to the Philistines, we have a psalm that accompanies that. And as he is outside that covenant community, David comes to say, how long, O Lord? He cries out, I remember your promises. I remember the sweetness of fellowship in your tent, in your worship. I remember what you have said about, about redemption and and." And I can't grasp it in this situation. My enemies surround me. They hound me. They try to trap me. How long, O Lord? But David, in the first instant, comes to the conclusion that he would listen and cry out to God. But this time... David arose and went over to Philistia again. And those words that are part of Psalm 56, our Psalm of the Month, those words about that first experience in Philistia are words that come in the context of that first occurrence. And the text is absent of any similar aspect of David crying out to God in this instant. We don't find it in the Psalms. We don't find it in the text. And in fact, in fact again, uh, the, the weight of those words come through in verse 1. And David said in his heart, In other words, in the context of this trial, that David shrunk into his own reasoning and began to scramble to find the way of escape based on his own wisdom, his own devices. You don't see David inquiring of the Lord. You don't see him resorting to God's word and his promises. You don't see him seeking out the counsel of godly godly friends. And this is the second way in which we can see David's wavering faith. 
I like the way Phillips describes it here because it helps us understand how we should live. He said that our faith wanes and our tendency to sin and folly grows when we neglect the means of grace. Say that again. Our faith wanes and our tendency to sin and folly grows when we neglect the means of grace. And if David, the man after God's own heart, could swerve off the road like this, then we should surely take note and be watchful, especially when you suffer severe trials. For David did swerve off the road, which leads us to how he lived amongst the Philistines. This is David's deception. As David crossed over to Philistia, he went to the king, the one that he had, he had seen before, the one he acted crazy with, the king of Gath. And he asked for asylum, a place to stay in Philistia. He could not go back to Judah. And at this point, Achish seems to think, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know that old adage? <laughs> so if David had made himself repugnant to Israel by this farce that he, he carries on that we're going to see. If uh, David is going to attack the Israelites, then I'll take David as my vassal. But that's exactly what David committed to be. He became an ally of Achish placed himself under his authority in a sense. But David was far from an ally with Achish. Because for the 16 months where, while David was in Philistia, David conducted what we would call covert military operations. <laughs> That's what they were. He and his forces would go on raids against cities, and it names them, the regions of the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. And you need to know who those were because they weren't what David said they were. He said they were regions in the southern area of Judah. And he names them as well, the Jezreelites, the Kenites. No, they were in fact not Israelites. They weren't Philistines, but... They were enemies of Israel that were on the southern borders. The text says that they were inhabitants of the land from of old. In other words, they were neighbors, they were enemies of Israel that as the children of Israel came into the promised land, God had told them to, to, uh, to expel them, to even to, uh, to kill them utterly and yet they had not accomplished that. So there were, were still these nations, and David went out to fight against them. And I call it covert because David hid it from Achish. <laughs> he comes back, and Achish says, Dude, where have you been? What, uh, look at all this great stuff that you got. Where did you raid today? That's some really great booty. And David said, well, I went and I raided Judah. And it was some good stuff. 
Well, how could he do this? And it's because David killed all the inhabitants of those cities where he went. Dead men tell no tales. So what are we to think of David's actions here? What are we to make of this? One could argue, and some have, that David was doing the work of the Lord. The people he was fighting against were indeed the enemies of God from of old. And that bears some explanation. I've hinted at this. This goes back to when God brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, brought them to the promised land. There were people living there. And those people had for a long history rebelled against God. And the Lord warned that judgment would fall on them. And he brought that judgment through the hand of the children of Israel. God's command for a very specific period, for a very specific time and a very specific judgment was to wage a holy war against the inhabitants of the promised land. To kill and to destroy man, woman, child, animals, everything, and in some cases animals and everything, uh, as a judgment of God. And I say it that way so that you don't ever think that we have a similar command today that was for a specific time in history. It fit because they were doing God's will. It was a holy judgment of God that was being exercised. If you'd like to talk more about that, uh, we can talk more later. And here in this case, and I mention it because some have reasoned that David was fulfilling that ban against the inhabitants of the, of the promised land. We could even turn back to God's command to Saul about Amalek. We covered that, didn't we? God commanded Saul to do this very same thing with Amalek that's listed here. Commanded him as a, a specific judgment uh, to kill all of the inhabitants of Amalek because of their sin. So one could argue that David was doing God's will. But this doesn't answer all of the questions. It is in the context of his going over to Philistia, showing his fear and his seeking shelter outside of the covenant God. It's shown in his decision to ally himself with Achish. It's shown in, in that verse 1 where this is, this is his notion of the way he would be delivered and it's shown in, in the way that as he goes about this work that there's never any mention of David fulfilling the command of God to do this. There's, no, uh, there's not even a sense of 
David doing this for the glory of God so that his righteous judgment would be fulfilled. Instead, what comes through is, is this idea of hiding what he was doing. It says right here that, uh, that they killed so that word would not get back to Achish. He was protecting himself rather than uh, exercising God's judgment. So when David comes back and, and uh, Achish sees, wow, David really has changed. There, there, there really is no going back to Judah. So when he marshals his armies to fight again, calls David. He says, it's time to go to war. And I'm calling all my generals in to do that. And assuredly, you know that you will fight with me as we go to attack Israel. And at that point, it's uh, you can almost Field sweat starts to come out on David's brow. Because all the while he was not fighting against Israel, he was hiding. Uh, he had consistently tried to, to remove himself away from Saul so that he would not fight against God's people. Now he was being forced into a condition that would expose him. For he would have to fight against Israel. There isn't any stammering in the text, but you could, uh, David might say, uh, 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 Surely you, you know my allegiance. Surely you know what your servant can do, is what it says. Which seems like either a boast or maybe even an excuse to try to get out of fighting and killing his own countrymen. But Achish would put him to the test. He would put him in, into an even more difficult position by serving as his own personal bodyguard. There's no hiding there. He would be under the eyes of Achish all of that time. So David was caught between a rock and a hard place. And in a sense, God was stripping away this, uh, this uh, uh, subterfuge, this, uh, his decision to try uh, to deceive the king of, of the Philistines. Once more, Pastor Ketty summarizes this by saying, while David was brilliant and successful, humanly speaking, but he slaughtered whole communities and lied through his teeth to Achish in the process. He had left his principles in the mountains of Judah and boxed himself into a corner where deceit and ruthlessness were the staples that kept him alive. 
David was indeed in a terrible position. He didn't trust Saul. He couldn't trust Saul. He didn't have to trust Saul. Surely he was worn out by a trial that seemed to never end. Nevertheless, there's much to learn here as David reasoned in his own heart. As David scrambled to find salvation, deliverance through his own hands and his own means. That's not all so different from the way I find myself responding often in the very first uh, aspects of a trial. I find myself thinking, so what should I do to manage this tragedy or this suffering or trial? What, can, what should I do to, uh, to, to m mitigate this disaster? And I'm thinking all in the terms of how I can manage this, how I can do this. So the question remains, or is pressed upon us from David, that how can we stand in that day of trouble? And from David, let me give you two quick points of application to close. The first is that God alone saves. You know that intellectually. But when push comes to shove, how often do you revert to yourself? God alone saves. Not you, not me. David wavered in unbelief, and he went down this path of depending on his own cleverness, his own military strategy, his own ability, his own, uh, his own strength of character to get out of this unfortunate position. But as I pointed out, you don't see any indication here that God sought out God's, or that David sought out God's direction in any way, anywhere in this chapter. And in the end, David comes to a place of compromising all of the principles that he seemed to have learned when he was in the wilderness of Ziph, when he was sparing Saul's life. God alone saves. And when you scramble to save yourself, you will find yourself in a position of compromise over and over again. You'll try to manage it, and uh, it will end up a disaster. Which means that, secondly, David pushes us to the conclusion of Hebrews 12. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. There are indeed all sorts of ditches and hills of difficulties and vanities that distract us and giants of despair and prisons of doubt. But true wisdom, true wisdom under fire is fixed on Jesus, on loving him, on following him, on crying out to him, on being his child and to understand that the Lord is with us in the race that is set before us. 
It is always good to lay plans. It is always good to think and to, uh, to, uh, to understand the difficulty and your situation. And, but that thinking and that planning has to be connected to your Savior. That happens through that commitment to have your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ so that every step of the race is, is bathed in his word, in going to him in prayer, in locking arms with other believers that are on that same path, and finding comfort and counsel from them. It is always by looking to Jesus. To look for help anywhere else is to look away from Jesus, quite honestly. To look away is to look away from Jesus, the only way of salvation. And when you look away, you'll find yourself in the camp of the Philistines, sure enough. Whatever else happens in life, says the commentator Phillips, Whatever persecution we suffer or hardships we endure, whatever injustice we experience or crosses we must bear, we must remain in Jesus Christ, trusting in the only Savior for the forgiveness of our sins and obediently submitting to his will. Would you pray that you would fix your eyes on Jesus? Let's pray. God, like David, we often go through very serious trials. We often get weary, and our faith is weak. And much like David, we cross over to the Philistines. Lord, I pray that in the midst of those trials, that we would hear your voice calling to come and find comfort and direction, that we would by faith cling to that. And though we do experience injustices, and though we do bear that cross of Christ, we would remember that we do so united to him. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would build us up in our holy faith, with our eyes fixed on our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll sing our psalm of the month in response, Psalm 56a. These words of David that say, When I'm afraid, I will trust in you and God whose words I praise. You might remember that at the end of the psalm, he says the same thing. I will trust in God. What can man do to me? Let's sing Psalm 56a. Please rise to sing.